Welcome back to the Burn Bag Podcast. This is Ryan, joined by Andre. Uh, Andre, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Uh, just a regular old Sunday evening for me. Not too much going on in my life. What about you, Ryan? Uh, not too bad with me. I spent uh, most of my day at Mount Vernon, uh, President George Washington's home. Quite an interesting um, place. You know, after living in D.C. for a, a couple of years, I haven't actually made it out to Mount Vernon. It was uh, very worthwhile. A lot of history there. I've been there once, maybe 10 years ago, actually. It's a very interesting place. Washington is buried there, right? He's buried right there. That's correct. He is buried uh, at his home. And uh, interestingly enough, the home is made out of wood. It doesn't look like... They actually made the house to look... They made the the wood look like it's stone. Like they carved the wood to look like stone, which was a very oh, weird so just like his teeth. fact, but uh, an interesting one. Although I think that's been debunked. I think he had a set of different dentures. And I don't know if we know the real source of his dentures, but an interesting guy said he died at 69. I mean, that was sort of early. He barely had a retirement, to be honest, but uh, American hero, our founding father. Yeah, our first president. Anyway, uh, Andre, I want to introduce our our guest that we interviewed today on the podcast, uh, Mark Polymeropoulos, a former CIA senior intelligence service officer. He served for 26 years in the CIA uh, around the world, from the Middle East to Eurasia. He worked uh, most significantly in counterterrorism and is the recipient of a lot of medals, including the Distinguished Intelligence Medal, the Intelligence Commendation Medal, the Intelligence Medal of Merit. Uh, Really just a fantastic conversation that we had with Mark, covering a a bunch of things from Afghanistan, where he actually served. Uh, We talked about his CIA career. We also talked about uh, something personal for him, which is uh, symptoms relating to Havana syndrome. He was one of the first individuals uh, to kind of come out uh, with symptoms from Havana syndrome. It actually caused him to retire from the agency. And so uh, really just kind of an illuminating conversation about that aspect as well. Yeah, absolutely. But Ryan, before we dig into the conversation, I I do want to make note of something that's been in the news. So when we released our What in the World on Friday, we had recorded that before the news had broken out about the U.S. drone strike in Afghanistan that we thought had killed an ISIS-K leader, but it actually killed about 10 innocent civilians, seven of those being children. Uh, it's, It's a very sad circumstance, obviously. I mean, Innocence dying anytime is tragic. Uh, given the nature of the withdrawal and our hyper focus in Afghanistan with the withdrawal, we are paying a lot, you know, we're paying a lot of attention to it. But there's also a lot of political criticism about this against the Biden administration and the strategy of over the horizon and so on. This the strike was not necessarily over the horizon. Because we had military personnel and intelligence personnel in Afghanistan when the strike was conducted. But it's sort of sad to see that people are using this as a political football on the right. And then on the left, we're seeing people kick that football back by accusing the Trump administration of also killing uh, innocent civilians. Let's get this straight. Innocent civilians dying because of drone warfare is bad. It's bad. It doesn't matter if it's under Biden or Trump or Obama. They've all killed innocent civilians with drone warfare. That's happened, and it's bad, and we need more accountability from our government. You cannot just talk about that from the Democratic side when Trump's in power, and you can't just talk about it from the Republican side when Biden and Obama are in power. Uh, Ryan, 
do you have any more information regarding statistics per se about drone strikes and innocent civilians? I do. And so there's this 2019 War on the Rocks report that actually looks to New America and the Bureau of Investigative Journalism data and going through Obama's term and then Trump's four years. And so let me just talk about Obama's first. There were about between 500 and 600 strikes. And of those strikes, the civilian deaths as a percentage of the total deaths was between 7 and 15%, depending on the sourcing of it, which is a significant percentage. And when you look to the Trump administration, uh, between 200 and 300 strikes, of course, Obama had two terms. Uh, President Trump had one term. So of the two to 300 strikes, um, there were between three and six and a half percentage civilian deaths as a percentage of the total casualties. Um, again, you know, any sort of civilian casualty is a tragedy, um, but the, the markedly, you know, significant increase uh, under the Obama years. Yeah, absolutely. And again, folks, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican, if you're only talking about drone strikes and innocent civilians being killed under President Biden or under President Trump, you really got to demand accountability from pe- from presidents of your own political party. And uh, that's all I'll say about that, because innocent civilians dying is a terrible, terrible tragedy. What happened a few weeks ago in Afghanistan should not have happened. And the hundreds who have died in the preceding years in this war in Afghanistan and elsewhere in the Middle East, those should not have happened either. And we can all do more to demand accountability and pay more attention when this when these tragedies happen. Without a doubt. And I will say, Andre, uh, General Kenneth McKenzie uh, Frank McKenzie, who we've actually had on the podcast, the CENTCOM commander, did take responsibility uh, for the strike and the civilian deaths that went with it. Uh, and so, yes, you know, while we should, you know, hold our government and its leaders accountable for this, uh, it is nice to see that they are not just kind of, you know, kicking it off. Hiding it. Right, yeah. exactly. Yep, they are. They're coming out and they're acknowledging it Absolutely. and taking responsibility for it. Uh, we'll probably have more on this uh, on the Friday's edition of What in the World. But for now, uh, we'll throw it to our episode with Mark. And Mark, I mean, in my opinion, is an American hero. He's done so much for our country, a 26-year career in the CIA. So without further ado, Mark. So, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time. I want to begin by talking about Afghanistan. Uh, Of course, we have the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, We have fully left you during your CIA career actually served in Afghanistan. And so I'd love to get kind of your views on the situation as it stands, what we did right, what we did wrong, and what kind of the implications are for not only agency operations, but also U.S. operations and interests in country and in the region. Well, so easy topic, right? <laughs> I think we need a series to go over this, but uh, no, but but you know, first and foremost, it's great to be uh, with you all today. Um, Afghanistan, I think, you know, uh, the last two weeks has been obviously dominated the news. Uh, you know, I feel like I've been you know every night on on one network or another, or you know, talking about it. But I think it ultimately, for a lot of us who serve there, it's because it is emotional. Um, because you know, the you know, since nine eleven, it's you know, it's been it's been two decades and. This has kind of been, you know, defining moments in a lot of our careers. And so, you know, I, I, you try to, as a commentator or an analyst on national security affairs, you know, step back a little bit um, and be, you know, you know, somewhat agnostic. But you can't be if you've been there and, you, you know, you put your feet on the ground there. So, you know, my views, I think, are as follows. First and foremost, what's on my mind today um, has to do with our Afghan allies. And I've been very vocal about this, but I think it's really important to talk about because, 
you know, no, sure that 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 you know the the American public wanted us out of Afghanistan. Okay, that was the you know certainly former President Trump's you know policy position, as was as is uh, uh, current President Joe Biden, and kind of this stumbling through the Doha Agreement, how we got there, can be a whole separate topic. But I think ultimately, you know, you know, we have to take a look at the the actual you know uh, modalities of the withdrawal itself, because what happened in the end is you know it looks like we're going to get out. The, the remaining Americans. And I'm not particularly surprised about that. Um, but what concerns me most, and again, it's a long-winded way of saying our Afghan allies. And for those of us, you know, particularly in the CIA who served there in Afghanistan, you know, I, I ran a base there uh, along the Pakistan-Afghanistan border, one of our paramilitary bases between 2011 and 2012 in Paktika province. And there was only a couple Americans, but that we had hundreds of Afghan indigenous allies. And so, you know, I'm here today because you know they they you know fought alongside us, but in many cases they saved our lives. And so you know when it comes down to uh, you know the question of of you know who remains in Afghanistan, you know ostensibly under the rule of a you know a medieval death cult of the Taliban. I'm not really sure you could say there's a Taliban 2.0 if you take a look at the formation of the cabinet. But ultimately, you know we have to get our Afghan allies out, and I think that's what is is really emotional. And we're talking tens of thousands of people. Um, who worked with intelligence officers, uh, U.S. diplomats, the U.S. military, um, uh, you know, USAID, uh, you know, uh, you know, in, in terms of humanitarian assistance. So it's a huge task, and that is not done. So I think that you know, first and foremost, you know, that's on my mind. Um, the second piece would have to do with kind of you know, where are we in terms of counterterrorism uh, uh, capability now? And I think that it, you know, it's you know, the the uh, I, I believe that, you know, the analysis you hear, um, you know, today is is essentially correct. You know, first of all, let's not talk in hyperbole. You know, this is not um, like it was before September 11th, 2001. Um, you know, I think we're safer, uh, except that we're not safe um, because ultimately you do have the government, the Taliban, uh, you know, and, and again, you take a look at the, at, at, you know, the current makeup. I mean, the Minister of Interior, Siraj Akhani, he's got a $10 million bounty on his head. But ultimately, the U.S. has lost a lot in terms of our ability to monitor, um, you know, the Taliban allowing for terrorist groups like Al Qaeda, which they are completely affiliated with, you know, allowing them them to uh, allowing a resurgence. Um, and of course, you also have ISIS K, um, you know, kind of their their enemy, but certainly a, a lethal uh, a group uh, active in Afghanistan as well. So, so ultimately, you know, we need to put the kind of the the, the again um, the elements of U.S. counterterrorism strategy and power, which is you know, human collection, human intelligence, SIGIN collection, you know, listening, you know, uh, uh, you know, via NSA, National Security Agency and others. And then ISR, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, aircraft, drones, you know, all elements of U.S. power has to be almost refocused once again on Afghanistan. And, and that's unfortunate because I think when you talk about, you know, kind of where we are now, great power competition, I think a lot of these resources we thought could be moved, um, you know, east towards towards Asia. And so really kind of that's that's what I'm thinking now about Afghanistan, you know, really, you know, difficult uh, uh, situation. Um, my old colleagues at CIA are going to have to do a lot more on counterterrorism. We're not going to get hit, I don't think, with a 9-11 style attack tomorrow. But the, the ability of Al Qaeda to to plan again is going to certainly be first and foremost on the minds of counterterrorism professionals. That is a concern. Um, and then again, getting our allies out, just morally and ethically, we have to do that. So I do want to focus on that second part of the answer with regards to counterterrorism capabilities in a little while. But I know uh, you've been very critical of both the Biden administration and the Trump administration for how both have uh, dealt with Afghanistan. Quite frankly, that's very refreshing to hear, you know, objective criticisms of, you know, very uh, political folks. But uh 
the president Biden has often talked about how like he may not have been able to have done this any better, that this was going to be messy. Is there any validity in that argument? Was this withdrawal going to be messy? I don't think so. Right. So I don't I don't think there's a binary choice. And you know, I'm surprised that he kind of frames it in that situation because ultimately what you had, and you know, this is getting in kind of the, the technicalities, is but the agreement that was signed with the Taliban, the Doha agreement, was a conditions-based agreement. And if the Taliban was not adhering to those conditions, the US does not have to withdraw. They were not adhering to those conditions, they did not renounce terrorism. And so just fundamentally, and it's something that the Trump administration chose to ignore, but the Biden administration you know, on January 20th also chose to ignore this. So it's kind of a mystery to a lot of people um, you know, for, for you know, uh, uh, President Biden to actually stick to an agreement that his predecessor um, uh, made. So ultimately, what I believe could have been done is you leave a residual for, you know, so you, you tell the Taliban you are violating the conditions. Um, you go back to the negotiating table and you ultimately still relieve, uh, leave a residual force of about, you know, three to 4,000 U.S. special operations and intelligence personnel uh, uh, as you go through this kind of political machinations um, with the Taliban. And it does two things. You know, it, it allows for, you know, first of all, the Afghan government to then get involved in negotiating directly with the Taliban. Hopefully down the line, you get some kind of power sharing or transitional government. Um, you know, the Taliban might, you know, effectively take over the government in some fashion, but you still wouldn't have this kind of collapse of the old Afghan government like we saw. And ultimately, maybe in a period of, you know, we buy maybe several more years left. And so I say this because what you got is not the, 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 the right answer. And so we have, we don't have an embassy anymore. That means there's no intelligence collection capability. We don't have an Afghan national intelligence service. That means we don't have a partner to do counterterrorism. So the middle ground that I, that I and many others were advocating which for some reason, you know, President Biden, you know, really rejected. Uh, I think it's something that should have been considered. And and frankly, you know, it's it, this is all, you know, in, in hindsight, what's what's happened happened. We're not going back to that clearly, you know, obviously. Um, but I think uh, uh, history will judge that there was a different path. So do you think that uh, because I mean, after the Soviets left in the late 1980s, Afghanistan, of course, descended into civil conflict. Right now, the Taliban appear to be in power, but they're also going to probably come into conflict with ISIS-K because, again, they're not allies. Uh, do you think civil conflict, civil war is possible in the near future for Afghanistan? Well, the, the question is, I mean, so, so the question is civil war, war between who? I mean, ISIS-K is a small group. And so could, will there be fighting between, you know, the Taliban slash Al-Qaeda allied together uh, against ISIS-K? Perhaps. Um, uh, I think there's, there's more of a question of what happens, and I, and I would argue when and not if, you know, the Taliban cracked down again. Uh, uh, and because, you know, my argument, and again, it, it's, it's, I think it's borne out with the, the elements of the cabinet, is that this is a medieval death cult. And, and you know, and, and the people who have been named you know, in the cabinet, whether it's the Minister of Defense or the Prime Minister, um, uh, the Minister of Interior, uh, uh, these are hardliners to the extreme. Um, and so, so ultimately, what happens when the Taliban crack down internally on the population? You know, will there be kind of revolts in the street? Because make no mistake, and one of the I think one of the tragedies of Afghanistan is that, you know, it is it is a different country right now. You know, it, it is a country where you know there's a you know a huge preponderance of things like social media and cell phone use, where where you know women work, girls went to school, and so you know there is going to be a very restive population that you didn't have back in 1996 when the Taliban the Taliban came into power in 1996, created in 94, came into power in 96 with a country that was was absolutely racked and destroyed by civil war. Much different country now. So I, I actually 
uh, am, am, am looking for, concerned uh, about, about civil unrest uh, inside Afghanistan, in which um, you know, there, there could be kind of significant loss of life when the Taliban cracks down on those that do decide to protest. So, Mark, uh, as the saying goes, hindsight is is twenty twenty. But if we look back uh, on the the U.S. Uh, intervention in Af- Afghanistan, what did we get wrong? Right? How did it come to the, the the case where we had to withdraw and we saw the Taliban retake power? Did we really understand the situation on the ground? I guess is the the baseline question because, of course, the United States um, and across the spectrum, whether it's the armed forces or the CIA or other intel gathering agencies conduct intelligence, human intelligence, all the different types of intelligence you talked about. Um, but at, at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's individuals that conduct intelligence and do analyses. And so did we truly understand what was happening on the ground? And did maybe our misunderstanding lead to the case that we just saw unfold in the past you know, years? Well, I, I would argue, actually, that the CIA is, is, is the one entity that had a tremendous understanding. Um, you know, we have a, we have a very deep bench you know, and and, and uh, there's multiple, there's friends of mine who have actually done far more than I, who served multiple tours there. Um, you know, I, I was, I started off on the Afghan desk in 93. I first went there as a case officer in Kandahar in 02, and I went back as a base chief in 2011 to 12. And, and, I, and mine was, that's, that's, that's not even close to um, uh, what, what others did. And, and you have to understand intelligence, intelligence gathering and, and intelligence assessments you know, or, you know, are, are only to be used by policymakers. And so, you know, you know, we, we are not the panacea. So, so ultimately it's, it's what policy chooses. Now I think history is going to judge that the U S military made a lot of mistakes there. And, and the most effective times we actually operated in Afghanistan were in small groups of CIA officers and, and U S special forces at the beginning of the war. Um, and so, so, I, and, and, and of course, then we got into kind of the, you know, huge numbers of, of U S forces there, um, you know, in the mid 2000s. And so, so, you know, ultimately, I think there's, there, there can be a very kind of good act after action report, there should be um, on, on, you know, on, on what we did wrong, and how we, you know, overextended ourselves there. Um, but also, you have to understand that in the last several years, we have not, we've had barely, you know, we had, we've had forces of 10,000 and under. And so, so ultimately, my argument would be that actually, uh, uh, this idea that, we, you know, you know, the, the war has ended now, well, the war was, was ended already. Um, you know, and if you left a, a force of whether it's five thousand or ten thousand in essentially a non-combat role, because that's what it was. We were this is this is intelligence and special operations forces. You know, you could claim, you know, victory or 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 a kind of stalemate and and essentially go home. Um, I think that, but the, the you know, I, I think the errors are going to be you know huge numbers of U.S. troops and also um, some pretty rosy assessments by the U.S. military. That that in fact, in all my experience in Afghanistan. We're always contradicted by the intelligence community because because at the end of the day, and I'm I am com- I am comfortable with this. I think others at CIA are as well. It's it's a it's an uncomfortable statement, but the fact of the matter is we could not leave without the Afghans falling apart. And so you know and and so so all the training assist mission that the the billions of dollars the U.S. big U.S. military put in to training the Afghan national security forces, um, you know I think I think we can we can question that. At the same time, the forces that the Joint Special Operations Command and the intelligence community, CIA trained, our Afghan indigenous units, they did not surrender. They fought till the end. And I think that's something you know, to be looked at as well. So do you think that, I mean, because you, you did say, and I've heard this from other people too and other sources, that the CIA was much better 
at operating in small groups, at actually working with the people and really just operating in that sort of effect, especially, I mean, when you go back to the first sort of weeks of the war, you talk about how the Northern Alliance came together and how those operations were taking place uh, up to December 2001. And uh, then, of course, we had the next sort of 20 years and then really a decade and a half of like, you know, really strong U.S. involvement. Is there like a problem in, I guess, coordination between the U.S. armed forces who are on the ground, really, you know, sort of engaging in state building and the CIA and what the CIA knows? Is there like a disconnect in effect? No, it's not a disconnect. It's just whether they listen or not. Okay. You know, I mean, so, you know, ultimately, you know, we're very, la- we're tightly lashed up with, uh, you know, with, with, you know, big U.S. military. Um, you know, the, the most productive relationships we usually have are with the, with the soft community, the special operations forces community, just because we're so similar. Uh, but no, we were we were lashed up with big U.S. military. And again, it's just, you know, they're, they're, the, the, ultimately, if, if you know, a, a three star general is given a task, there's almost a, a you know, predilection for them to be optimistic about achieving that task. It's just that's just the nature of, of being in, in, in the armed forces in the U.S. military. Conversely, you know, CIA officers, you're an intelligence officer, you're always a skeptic on stuff. So it's not that you see the glass half empty, but you're always questioning things a little more. Um, uh, but ultimately, you know, uh, uh, we are lashed up with uh, with the U.S. military. And again, as the role of an intelligence officer is to provide warning, um, but you know, we, we don't pr- provide policy prescriptions. And you know, it, you know, people, you know, policymakers listen to us when they choose, and sometimes they don't. And there's nothing we can do about that. Oh, absolutely. And so, uh, Mark, as we look to the the region, I'm I'm curious about your thoughts. Um, when we see China seemingly taking over, uh, I guess maybe the quote unquote the U.S. role, but from the Taliban perspective, um, maybe you know we we see aid, maybe some sort of cooperation. How big of a threat will it be with the U.S. completely kind of sidelined now that we have no, as you said, we have no embassy, therefore no real ability to operate in country. Right. Um, when we have a huge adversary like China coming in. What does that kind of portend, not only for Afghanistan, but also for our regional uh, right. affairs and operations? So, I mean, first of all, so we're not in a good position because ultimately we had one friendly government in the region, and that was the government of Afghanistan. As kind of lousy and corrupt and complicated as they were, that was our only ally. And we had, you know, a, a pretty significant U.S. military bases there, including Bagram Air Base, which is a with two massive runways. And so, so losing that hurts. Um, and, and, you know, if you look at the regional makeup, you also have, and it's a situation that's clearly different than right after 9-11, where there was sympathy because the U.S. was attacked. But you have the Central Asian states that are much more kind of under the thumb of Moscow, and so they're not going to be as willing to, to cooperate. And then you have the government of Pakistan, which is, a, you know, you know I always, I always uh, and Pakistan, which is, which is actually critically important to us right now. But I also, you know, we also, you know, I always say, you know, Pakistan is the ally from hell because, it is just so incredibly complicated. It's a nuclear armed state um, with incredible internal problems and even disparate factions inside, sometimes working against you know, U.S. interests and sometimes working for. But we lost our key ally, which is, which is the Afghan government. Now, when it comes to China, you know, the, the easy soundbite is China wins. And in some extent, you know, China is in a good position. They will probably recognize the Taliban government. And clearly, they're interested in, in a, you know, a very you know, resource and mineral rich Afghanistan so they can exploit that. But but they're not necessarily uh, uh, natural allies, because remember, Taliban has the Taliban has hosted groups such as the Uyghurs, you know, and, 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 and China is facing an insurrection 
you know, uh, uh, in, inside its own country. And so how is the Taliban going to deal with their historical sympathy and, you know, allowing the Uyghurs to actually train and, and, you know, and, you know, and, and exist inside Afghanistan, coupled with the Chinese coming in and wanting to invest? Um, so, you know, it, it's, it, it, is a, it, is, it is a bit complicated. And we'll kind of, we'll, you know, we'll see how it, uh, 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 how it works out. I mean, you know, you, on the one hand, we could say that we have certainly lost. On the other hand, you could also say, okay, China, you, you have your shot, you know, at being the, you know, the colonial power in Afghanistan, see how that goes. So I would say it's, compli- it's complicated. It depends. There's no easy answer on this. So, I mean, so much of what the U.S. stands for is democracy and freedom and liberty. And uh, certainly those were the values we try to, you know, put forth to Afghanistan, put forth to Iraq. But I mean, our involvement in both of those countries has sort of gone a bit haywire, of course. And then we've seen, (laughs) for for the lack of a more diplomatic term, (laughs) but uh, with regards to that, because I mean, the rest of the world is sort of watching, you know, this withdrawal unfold and stuff. Does it significantly leave permanent damage in the style that Vietnam left like significant damage to, I guess, U.S.? Uh, the U.S.'s stature on the world stage and the confidence. I, I think it, you know, so it's it's a great question. Um, I think it does, uh, and so you know, and and ultimately because uh, you know, it's it's you know, yet another occasion where the United States did not kind of uphold our commitments. I think a lot of this does depend on how brutal and repressive the new Taliban regime is going to be. I mean, all signs are not pointing in it's in a good direction, but ultimately you can see. Even our European allies are a little, uh, um, you know, uh, out of sorts a bit on, on on what's happened. So I think it does matter. Now, is it catastrophic? No, because ultimately everyone is trying to turning toward pivoting towards great power competition again, which is going to be China, Russia. Um, you know, uh, NATO is still, even if they're upset about what happened with the withdrawal, is still enormously relieved that President Bush, uh, sorry, that President Trump is not there, who is actively hostile towards the NATO alliance. So, so President Biden has the opportunity to kind of to regain the initiative. Um, but this wasn't good. There's, there's no doubt about it. I think, you know, and that's kind of on the strategic level, on the tactical level for the United States in terms of the intelligence community and special operations forces, you know, this will make it harder, you know, uh, uh, our withdrawal, our, quote, abandonment of our allies when we do need to go into another area. And so that's what I did a lot of my career. I was with Syrians or with Iraqi Kurds or certainly with the Afghans working with indigenous forces where ultimately we have to go in there and we make some promises and you hope we can uphold those, uh, and so so I think that a lot of people around the world will be a bit a bit more skeptical um, in, in the future. So I think the U.S. did take a hit, um, you know, on the international stage. You know, it's, it's it's certainly it is reversible. One of the key interesting points on this, though, and I know it's not the topic of our of our conversation, is that for domestic politics, I don't think Americans care. I mean, we care. Those who who you know are practitioners of foreign policy who are interested, who want to have careers in it, care. But I don't think Americans care one way or the other. Um, you know, I think that's unfortunate, but I don't think this hurts Biden, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, domestically um, as much as it might hurt him internationally. I think that's absolutely uh, right. I think it's a spot on assessment of it. Uh, but if we look to the future, Mark, and we kind of think about U.S. activity in the region, we've heard politicians and some analysts say that uh, we might be back. And so from your assessment, yeah. are, are we going to be back in Afghanistan, given, you know, the, the threats of maybe ISIS-K or other groups, maybe Al-Qaeda? Uh, will we be back in Afghanistan? Yeah, so you know it's Groundhog Day again. So you know, I think that that you know it, it is certainly possible. And again, I, I don't want to engage in hyperbole. You know, there's a lot of politicians who saying that you know we will a thousand percent be back. Well, I don't know about that, but conditions are certainly ripe for that to to, to have a much greater chance. 
because of the resurgence um, of Al Qaeda, because of, of you know these ungoverned spaces that the Taliban now control, and because a terrorist entity is now the government. Um, you know, it, you know, I, I think that uh, 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 tomorrow, on uh, 9-11, um, you know, we're going to see some kind of unsettling, you know, scenes out of Afghanistan where the Taliban are really going to, in essence, be trolling us. Um, and so it's going to be, you know, a, a bit upsetting on that. So, look, it's entirely possible the, the you know, history does not history has to teach us things and ungoverned spaces or areas where terrorist entities, you know, govern, um, you know, certainly are breeding grounds for, for you know, for terrorist groups to, to expand. And, you know, and and take a look at what happened in Iraq when we left, you know, uh, there's a precipitous withdrawal from Iraq. We had to go back in. So I think I think it's fair to say that we may be back. I sure hope we're not. But I think it's it's certainly fair that we may be. And what will happen absolutely is that those valuable intelligence and military resources we thought we could move in the pivot towards Asia are going to have to stay, uh, especially if it's hard and over the horizon capability and, you know, drones flown from, from the Persian Gulf. I mean, all you know, we have a finite number of resources. and. CIA officers in our counterterrorism center who we thought we could move to other issues are going to have to remain there. So, you know, maybe we'll be back, but certainly we have a lot of attention uh, uh, to put on Afghanistan uh, in the the near and and the the long term. So, Mark, I now want to transition to conversation into a bit of a talk about your own career. So you've alluded to what you did with the CIA, but I'd love to hear more about what exactly it was you did at the CIA, of course, in terms of what you can tell us. And uh, what, why did you, why did you join the CIA? So, so first of all, I served 26 years there. Um, I, you know, I joined on the analytics side. I went to uh, get my undergraduate and graduate degree from Cornell University. So I joined uh, uh, as an analyst for the first two years, and then I decided to switch over uh, to become a case officer. I spent the remaining 24 on, on, on operations. But I, you know, I always joke around with my parents who were always worried about me, but it was, it was their fault that I ended up, uh, you know, joining the agency, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm of, of Greek background. And so we traveled every summer to Greece. Um, my dad was a college professor, which meant we traveled all over Europe and frankly, all over the world. So, you know, he had three months off. So I had this at a very young age, I really had this kind of worldly view and I wanted, I knew I wanted to do something a little different. Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, and, 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 I, and I do look back and there's some seminal moments. I actually write about it in, in my book, Clarity in Crisis. But the, when, you know, when I was 10 years old, my father took a sabbatical teaching in Algeria. And so in one of the crazy things, look, I have two kids now in college. I don't know if I would do this um, when, when I, you know, when they were 10 years old, but my mom put me on an airplane at JFK airport in New York by myself. And I flew to Paris by myself. And then I flew to Algiers. And my father and I, when I was 10 years old, drove an old Volkswagen minibus 2000 miles to the Sahara desert for one month. I mean, who does that? And, but, and of course I thought after that, I was Lawrence of Arabia and I fell in love with the region. And, and so, the, you know, there's kind of little things along the way um, where I knew I wanted to do something kind of with, you know, public service, but but in one of our kind of forward facing outfits, whether it's the intelligence community or the State Department. And then probably, you know, by by, you know, early in college, I read a lot of Tom Clancy novels and and, and CIA was, it, it, you know, it, it turns out it's the only job I ever had. So I was recruited out of grad school at Cornell and went right in and uh, and uh, and started off on this kind of crazy 26 year journey. I mean, and what a journey it's been. I mean. If you just kind of look at your CV, you've been around the world and in a lot of dangerous places as well. And so I'm curious, Mark, you know, given that you spent 26 years in the agency, how did it change uh, over time, particularly the pre and post 9-11 eras? I imagine there was immense change. Well, so I, I, you know, I joined in January of, of 1993. And it's interesting because you're right. I mean, this is this is a time where agent, I mean, the agency budgets were much smaller. Certainly our training classes were tiny. 
Um, and, and, you know, a lot of people did question, you know, kind of what, what would happen with, with CIA, but in 93 is when, you know, I, I, I my first, my first uh, desk was the Afghan desk, amazingly enough. Um, but there were, there were started to be some significant concerns about terrorism at that time. Um, you know, whether it was the first world trade center bombing, then you kind of move on to the, you know, uh, uh, bombings of, of our embassies in Africa, um, the USSS, USS coal bombing. And so up even up until until you know those terrible days in September 11th, terrorism, you know, there there was a feel that that something was happening in the region. And that's what I was actually working on for, for a lot of my time, as well as other issues in, in the in the Middle East. Um everything did change on 9-11, where all of a sudden our you know our budgets, you know, you know, you know, had, had massive expansion, personnel, resources, um, and certainly the mantra, which was, you know, to find those, you know, responsible um uh for for 9-11 but also you know deter uh terrorist groups from future attacks and so and i spent um you know i did seven operational tours overseas i spent you know half a year in iraq over a year in in afghanistan so after 9-11 almost three years away from my family um and so you know the the kind of the preponderance of my career was certainly um uh working counterterrorism issues interestingly the end of my career the last two years um, and, and probably the, the, the most senior job I had when I was promoted to the senior intelligence service, which is the, the general officer class of, of CIA. Um, I was I was the deputy and then the acting chief of operations in what we call the Europe and Eurasia Mission Center. So in essence, I was the head of clandestine operations between you know Dublin all the way to the eastern time zones of Russia with fifty plus you know countries. And so a massive job, something really different. But they put a lot of us there because of what happened in two thousand sixteen. Um, and, and with Russian interference in the U.S. elections, so they took a lot of veterans from the Near East, Near East uh, Operations uh, 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 Center, as well as from the counterterrorism campaigns and put us on kind of countering Russia. And so the last several years, um, which I thought would actually, you know, when I when I moved there, I thought it would be, you know, uh, you know, pre, you know, pretty easy and benign. But, you know, the Russians turned out to be a, a huge adversary. You know, Ukraine is, of course, enormously important. And think about Ukraine in the context of the U.S. political you know, kind of mess that that occurred. Turkey, you know, another very difficult ally. Um, I think the two hardest assignments for a CIA officer or a diplomat, it would be Turkey and Pakistan, um, which are which are allies, but which are very difficult ones um, uh, with all sorts of kind of internal machinations. So, you know, the the you know, uh, uh, the, you know, my career was certainly varied um, across kind of multiple you know uh, areas and time zones. Um, but one of the things I always talked about was, you know, it, and, and this is why I love talking to, you know, college students or, or or young professionals who are interest, interested in going to the intelligence community, you certainly don't have a dull day ever. You know, I always, you know, it's not like I walked in there with a smile on my face. Nobody does that, you know, every day, but it's, it was a, it was a hell of a career because every day kind of had something different um, with, uh, with different challenges. And so, you know, I, I, I think I, I served work, you know, under four different presidents um, in, in my career. And so, uh, you know, uh, you know, saw, saw a lot of history, uh, you know, witnessed a lot of history and perhaps we tried to make some of it too. So we're recording this episode on the day before the 20th anniversary of September 11th, uh, and you've had a 26-year career in the CIA, and you've certainly seen the before and the after. Uh, after 9-11, of course, we had a reckoning in terms of mistakes that the intelligence community had made. We had the 9-11 Commission and so on. But I guess, are, are you satisfied with how the intelligence community has addressed some of these mistakes? Do you still think that perhaps we might be lagging behind in some areas with regards to counterterrorism, or have we mostly addressed those? Well, what, what a great question. So there's two parts to that is, <clears throat> one is, is you know, and, and it's something that, that you see, there's there, I mean, if you look on social media and academic circles, 
there's a lot of navel gazing now, you know, post 9-11 on, on how we did. And it, that drives me crazy a little bit, um, you know, uh, uh, because ultimately there was not a second attack on the homeland. You know, ultimately, in our, you know, our counterterrorism efforts, for example, in Yemen, you know, prevented, you know, you know, uh, uh, the Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, an Al-Qaeda affiliate conducting kind of mass attacks on, on airliners um, uh, uh, that would have killed hundreds, uh, if not thousands, and crippled U.S. aviation. So so I think the intelligence community can, can be very proud of what we did, um, you know, in terms of, 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 you know, mistakes or lessons learned. Look, I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of things that happen. You can think there's very sensitive issues to to talk about or not talk about, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, enhanced interrogation uh, uh, program or, you know, and things like that. So, you know, you know, perhaps there was significant overreach. But I think ultimately where we are now, it's kind of interesting because, you know, uh, the question is, is the intelligence community postured right now to to undertake, you know, which is which is, you know, we go going back to kind of great power competition. And so you can make a strong argument. And, and I know CI Director Bill Burns and the, the director of National Intelligence of Real Haynes are trying to address this, but we are postured right now as a counterterrorism entity because we got really good at it. But are we postured um, in terms of great power competition? Do we have enough resources, personnel, um, you know, locations to operate from to, to you know, to, to take a hard look at China um, and Russia? And so I think there has to be kind of that that shift, um, which which then going back to Afghanistan, you you know, I, I know that the planners back back at Langley are like, oh, for God's sakes, you know, we, we're trying to shift. To, to, to great power competition. Now we have to leave some residual capability on counterterrorism. But, you know, but ultimately, I think that we are going to have to make that shift. China is the biggest strategic threat. Um, you know, Russia has, has proven incredible ability to cause chaos within our country. Uh, the terrorist threat still is real. Um, but but I think the, our, our national security agencies do have to shift to uh, to what we call kind of it used to be called near peer competition. I think the DOD, their national defense strategy has changed it to great power competition. I think that's the right way to go. So Mark, before we kind of transition to talk about uh, your the end of your career and into your book, I want to ask you about Russia. I'm a, a Russianist. I, I'm a Russia watcher. And so I have to ask you, as someone who kind of led SN operations in Europe and Eurasia, what your thoughts are about the kind of concept that Russia is a declining power. It's kind of, you know, its economy means that it can't really operate in, in a functional way. At least to me, it seems like that's uh, a crazy statement, given what they did in our elections. They're operations around the world, not only, you know, physical operations, but also cyber operations seem to be um, immensely capable of just causing chaos, not only the U.S., but in countries that have even less capabilities to defend themselves. So, so you know, I think I, I would agree with your analysis on this. Um, so, you know, while, while, you know, Russia certainly, and Vladimir Putin, you know, considers and wants Russia to be treated on equal status as a great power uh, a competitor of the United States, you know, they do have the economy of what is it, Italy. Um, but, and, and I'll, and I'll say something that would be a controversial statement. You know, it's also a, a rogue slash terrorist regime. And so because of that, they cause incredible chaos because Vladimir Putin, you know, does not respect any norms of any kind of diplomatic behavior. Um, and you can go across the board, whether they, 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 I mean, they, in essence, launched a chemical weapons attack in England, you know, trying to kill Sergei Skripal, you know, a, a, a defector, um, extraordinary breach of dif- diplomatic norms. Um, they've 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 uh, attempted assassination operations all over the globe, um, let alone you know trying to go after Alexei Navalny, you know the, the chief opposition leader uh, inside inside Russia. Uh, the Russian Air Force has committed heinous war crimes in Syria, repeatedly bombing hospitals. And 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 one of the things that I think that where the international community has failed spectacularly is is checking countering all of this Russian behavior. Um, 
I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that I wish I would see more of from this administration in which they had promised was more of a, a pushback against Russia. Yet uh, they kind of, they okayed, in essence, the, the continued um, c- construction of, 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 uh, of the pipeline of Nord Stream uh, 2, you know, uh, uh, I guess at the, uh, you know, for, for fear of, of alienating our, our German partners. Um, but ultimately, you know, Russia behaves in a rogue fashion. And, and I think has to be treated that way. And so, you know, it's, it is a, you know, it's not a strategic threat to the United States. It's not just a tactical threat. It's kind of in this weird gray zone of, of doing a lot of things to us that can cause a lot of harm. Um, you know, Russia is not going to bring down the United States economy. China might. China is a huge competitor. But Russia is, you know, a huge pain in the ass um, and can, can, you know, certainly do a, a, a give us a, a whole lot of, of damage and hurt. And just look at the events of this week where the German government has complained about, you know, uh, you know, Russian cyber attacks. I mean, af- even after, um, you know, kind of we okayed the pipeline. And so, you know, ultimately, it's a, it's, it's a country that has not been checked in its behavior. Um, I think that's got to change. Um, I was hopeful for the Biden administration. I'm a little less so now. Um, I, I think, you know, uh, uh, but, but, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, time will tell. So speaking of Russia, in December 2017, you visited Moscow. And you came back with just these terrible, terrible migraines. And it turned out that you had been a victim of Havana syndrome. And we've been hearing a bit about Havana syndrome uh, in recent months in the news with regards to some of our diplomatic staff, our national security staff. Can you tell us a bit more about both the Havana syndrome and also like how you're doing with with this? Well, no, first, thanks. Thanks for asking. So, you know, I, I, you know, I made this fateful trip in December of 2017 to See our ambassador, um, John Huntsman, who is a great statesman. He's an ambassador in Moscow, he, previous ambassador in Beijing. You know, he's our ambassador in uh, obviously in the, in Russia. And also, I was there to, to meet with our counterparts, which is what we do. You know, uh, even in the dark days of the Cold War, we did have kind of open communications with the KGB. So I was there to meet my counterparts in the Russian security services. But you know, in the middle of the trip or so, I woke up in the middle of the night. This incredible case of, of vertigo and headache and tinnitus, which is uh, uh, you know ringing in the ears, and it started this really miserable journey in which. Ultimately, I was diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury, which which uh, uh, which you know doctors and others really think was because of a directed energy attack, which is something we saw start in 2016 um, uh, against uh, many U.S. officials at the embassy in Havana, Cuba, and has really continued across the globe with reported you know attacks, and you've seen in the press with almost a mass casualty event at the U.S. embassy in Vienna, Austria recently, um, attacks recently in Hanoi, the embassy in Vietnam, just prior to Vice President Harris's uh, arrival there attacks in Germany. Uh, and, and so it's really, it's global. And so um, it's a, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously something that is kind of mysterious. Um, but these are, in my view, and I think the views of a lot of others, you know, acts of war that are being perpetrated against U.S. government officials. CIA Director Bill Burns is taking this very seriously. He has, in essence, taken the team that was integral in finding bin Laden and put them on this, the kind of the, the targeting and analytic and operational team. Um, uh, and so, so, you know, ultimately we have to get to the bottom of who's doing this because this is a new type of hybrid warfare in which U.S. officials are getting kind of taken off the battlefield, some with crippling and career-ending injuries. I had to retire because of it. Some people are in far worse shape than I am. Um, but ultimately, an adversary is doing this, and we have to obviously find out who's doing it and then uh, and then hold them accountable. I mean, it's incredibly concerning, and, you know, I'm glad you're, that you're doing okay, but still, you know, these symptoms are can be very debilitating. And so... If we if we look at you know the spectrum of who can do this, I, I imagine it's probably uh, some nation state because this seems like very uh, sophisticated type of technology. But also with that, is it in, at least in your kind of view of things, is this a deliberate 
attack on U.S. personnel, or is this just kind of a maybe a consequence of some sort of maybe listening technology or, you know, reconnaissance, something like that? So I think that's the big question. And, you know, one of the things that I'm very careful at is I I don't have any definitive answers because I don't think we do. So is it a signals intelligence system, a SIGINT system that's kind of cranked up too much? Is it a SIGINT system that was cranked up too much? And then an adversary said, well, wait a second, we can hurt people with this. And so they're doing it now deliberately. Is it one adversary? Is it, is it multiple adversaries? I think, you know, the jury's still out. I think, I think people are being very open-minded. Um, there is no dispute that it's happening. So the days of thinking this was psychosomatic and that people are all making it up, that is, that is past. And I think there was, you know, there was a National Academy of Sciences study that was commissioned by the State Department in 2019, led by a doctor in Stanford, Dr. David Relman, who came out and said, look, these, these are likely directed energy attacks, um, which I think was really important uh, because for the first time, you know, leading scientists and researchers were saying this is what occurred. And I think that's the conventional wisdom now. Um, but yeah, but, you know, but, but ultimately these are, this is something that is, uh, that is really kind of plaguing to this day, uh, uh, the U S government, uh, you know, when I went out to Afghanistan or Iraq, I knew there was danger. I certainly didn't expect danger, you know, for, for myself or my family. And, and by the way, families are getting injured by this as well. It's not just U S officials, but I didn't expect them in the middle of Europe. I, this, this shouldn't be happening there. So again, it's one of the, you know, it's, I, you know, I, I often sit and I, you know, I often talk on foreign policy, foreign affairs. And, and of course, people ask me all the time about uh, Havana syndrome. It's certainly not what I want to be known for. Um, I think that the, the space I'm most comfortable talking about is, is advocating for healthcare for those who have been affected. I had a really big struggle with the CIA to get healthcare. I finally did at Walter Reed's uh, traumatic brain injury center. But ultimately, you know, my space now is to really advocate for the healthcare of our officers. And there's a lot of bodies piling up, you know, outside Walter Reed now, um, you know, not not literally, but a lot of people are getting treated. And so that's, you know, that's something that we have to do, uh, you know, as we try to figure out who's doing this and, and counter them, we have to also treat our personnel. Just two last questions on the topic. In general, are people able to recover from Havana syndrome? And then otherwise, uh, has there, is this like the first instance of such an attack on our personnel? Have there been, has there been a history of other types of attacks on our personnel in Europe and other areas? So, there, you know, there's, there's, there's been a history of attacks on our personnel in Moscow for, for decades upon decades. And so everything from spy dust to other kinds of microwave radiation, there's been, you know, rare cancers suffered by generations of U.S. officials in Moscow. So I think the Russians have done this, the Soviets first and the Russians. Um, but but clearly these are things you know that are happening around the world now. So I think that is something that is um, that is absolutely new. And so that's you know that's a that's a that's a, a, a great question because you know again this there there are, in the intelligence business you know there was always this you know you talk about a gentleman's agreement and so you know you're not supposed to do this to your adversary if someone's doing this to us um, you know and so so we just got to get to the bottom of it. Well, I, I uh, hope that the United States government um, and our allies can get to the bottom of this and that you stay. Uh, well, but Mark, I want to now move on to your recent book, which has been getting fantastic reviews. It's Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA. And what you do in this book is you kind of lay out some core principles and some takeaways from your career in the agency. And so without kind of giving away the book, and so I, I do encourage everyone to go out and, and buy it and give it a read, but what are some kind of crucial, maybe just a handful of takeaways and these principles that you've developed from your career at CIA? So that was that was perfect intro because HarperCollins, my, my publisher is like, stop talking about all nine principles. No one's gonna buy the book. No, so, we'll, we'll, but I, I don't mind. We'll talk about a couple. So one of the things that I realized at the end of my career in CIA is that, you know, I wasn't a great leader the whole time, but that at the end of my career, not unheard of. The end of my career, I was really good at this. And and what was I good at? So the the whole the whole principle of clarity and crisis is leading 
in times of crisis, leading when there, there's a lack of what we call situational awareness or times of ambiguity. And, and, and the principles that I came up with, this is really based on the real world experiences, um, was, was when I, I, I found myself in situations where everyone else wanted to flee, but I was like, I'm okay with this. And so, so, you know, and, and, and there's a way to kind of train yourself. It's, you know, it, where, where step-by-step you can build teams and units and even your own leadership philosophy and style where you are comfortable in that gray, where that's your happy place. And, and, and I mean this seriously. And, and it kind of it dawned on me as we were, you know, uh, uh, probably 2015, 2016 or so, 2015, when I still, when I was just still doing counterterrorism operations where there was an operation, it was, it was at, in Afghanistan and there was, you know, the, the, you know, it looked like the world was a mess. Our, our, our ISR, our surveillance resources were off. There was a lot of, you know, uh, lack of situational awareness. I was back at our headquarters. My old, my team was on the ground and there was question on whether we would go after a high value target, try to capture them and huge uncertainty back at headquarters. But I knew that I had, I, I had the right team on the ground. So I had done a couple of things with them. We were really tight, close knit team. I had mentored them. I had trained them. We'd been through a lot of adversity together. Um, they were humble. They were humble warriors, but they, you know, they were really good. They knew that the, the key processes that they had to do. And, 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 and so a senior officer came to me, a very senior officer and said, should we execute on this mission? I said, absolutely. And they said, I can't believe you're saying this. We don't know what's going on. And I said, now nah, I'm good with this. And, and he even said like, your career is on the line if this goes wrong. And I said, no problem. And, 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 and the operation was successful. And so after that, I actually started thinking, well, wait a second, I got to put some of these principles down. Um, uh, and, and, you know, just because I think they, they're, they're not only applicable to kind of my line of work, intelligence and, and special operations, but when I wanted to write the book and kind of tell the world about this, a great friend of mine said to me one time, he said, Mark, a librarian has to be able to use this. Like, this is not your crazy type A, you know, alpha male, alpha female, you know, per, type A personality um, book. It has to be applicable to everyone. And I think, you know, you know, what better time now than with the age of COVID where there really is a lot of uncertainty in the world. So, so, you know, so what, you know, what does this mean in terms of actual principles? And, and, I'll, and I'll go over a couple and it's, I think it's going to be really easy to, to kind of relate to. Um, and again, these are principles in which you practice these. And ultimately, when, when times are tough, when there's a lack of situational awareness, you're able to make really good decisions. So think about this. So the first principle I like talking about, I call it the glue guy or the glue gal. And that's identifying and cultivating, you know, the indispensable members of your team. Um, and they might not be your all-stars. And so this is really important. So it can be, you can, if you're, if you're a doctor and, and, you know, and, and you're performing surgery, you know, who's your glue guy or glue gal? It's the nurse. You know, if you're, you know, when we were running operations, we were running a high value target operation and, and I was with the Navy SEALs and we, they kicked down a door and I was the second person in the room. I spoke Arabic. I, you know, we pinpointed the target. Well, who's the, who's the glue guy or the glue gal? How about the logisticians in the back? You know, how about, how about the, the analysts who gave us that information? And so what you do as a leader is you have to do two things. One, you have to identify you know, you know, you know who these people are, and you have to do two other critical components. You have to reward them when you have success, and you have to actually include them in your planning processes. Um, you know, if you're sitting in a university, you know, if you're if you're a professor, it could be your IT personnel. I mean, you know, or just just basic fundamental things that you need. Um, and so, I, I you know I love that principle, and that really kind of helped me uh, uh, along the way because again, when you're down the line making decisions, you know that's the, you know you have those key people um, uh, 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 as part of your team. I'll give you one more, um, you know, uh, uh, leadership principle that I love, and I call it family values. And that's the idea that if you want to, you know, if you want men and women to follow you into battle, um, you know, they got to believe in you and believe in each other. And, and you can, you kind of have to foster that feeling of brotherhood and sisterhood. Again, you really have that close knit team. And I tell incredible stories 
about, about you know, in the book, and, and the book has tons of operational stories. One of the great things is that CIA cleared a ton of war stories. I'm a great storyteller. So, so that's why I think the book's a lot of fun because I can talk about these principles in abstract, but everyone wants to hear the kind of the war stories. But in terms of value, family values, um, you know, I, I think about one time uh, uh, where, you know, I was in Afghanistan and my, my mom passed away um, and I had to get back to New Jersey. And that's a hell of a 7,000 mile trip. So what happened? So I, I was on I was on the border, the pac Afghan border. I had to take multiple helicopter flights from different bases to finally get to a C-130 to finally get me to Kabul to get a jet to go back home. As, as we're leaving the, the farthest frontline base, the weather's terrible. And I'm sitting there and we have our, our special, our, our pilots and they're veterans of, of kind of army, you know, uh, task force 160 special operations uh, units, the best pilots in the world. And they come over when they retire, they come over to CIA. So, so we take off and it's terrible weather. And, you know, I have, I have night vision on and I'm in comms with them and we're just hovering over this mountain, mountain pass for about 45 minutes. And I was like, Hey, let's just turn around. This isn't safe. And they said, no, no chief, you know, we, we got this. And we finally got to the next base. And I said to them, I said, you know, that wasn't safe. Like, you know, why are we doing this? And they said, you know what? We know your mom passed away. So we were getting you no matter what. So how do I not have a feeling of camaraderie and brotherhood with these people? And so, you know, I love that story because, because again, as you build teams and units, you try to foster that. So when times are tough, you know, and, and, it, you know, the, the proverbial kind of crap has hit the fan, you know, these are the people who are behind you. And so I love that story, you know, and, and I know family values is kind of a, you know, a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a cute little title. Um, but it really meant a lot to me. And so, so ultimately it's, it's a book about leading in times of, uh, uh, of crisis. I think a lot of people are going to, uh, you know, people, uh, the, 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 the response has been fantastic. I have fun talking about it. I have fun talking about CIA. I think it's an indispensable institution. Um, you know, a lot of misnomers in, in, in the public, but kind of leadership principles, uh, I think people are really, really digging. So I'm, I'm really happy with the response so far. It's been I think, almost three months to the day when it was first published. Wow. Well, I mean, it really has gotten great um, feedback and for, for a, a great reason. It's really a, a fantastic book. And I think the best part about uh, former agency officials, former IC officials, former members of the armed forces is that they have so many great um, principles or ideas or just life experiences that can translate across the spectrum of, of people's lives. And so uh, there's one in particular thing that I want to hit on, and, and that is leading in crisis, whether you're in Afghanistan or you're running a small business, it takes determination and confidence. And those two things are hard to come by just because they're, they're scary. And, you know, how, how have you been able to, of course, you said, you know, being a leader was troubling for you in the early days. You had to kind of come into it and learn along the way. But is determination and confidence, are those things that can be learned? Or how can you cultivate those for someone who might not be naturally determined or naturally confident? So, so the way I, I couch it, it, so I agree with you and I couch it even a little differently in terms of adversity. So, you know, and one of the principles is called adversity is the performance enhancing drug to success. So, you know, you get your teeth kicked in all the time, but you come back. And so it's not only being confident and determined, but it's, it's known that you're going to fail and it's how you respond to that. I mean, I, I love this because, because ultimately, um, you know, you got to taste rock bottom first. That's got to be your super fuel when you fail. And so there's there's kind of that mental toughness, and that's what that, that's what you have to have as a CIA officer, um, or just in life. I mean, I think you know life is hard. And I, the, the analogy I always say, look, Michael Jordan got cut from his high school basketball team, right? I think he did okay, but good thing he got back up, you know, put his sneakers on and went back out to the court again. And so so you have to be you have to be you know uh, certainly tough, but I think a lot of that mental toughness um, comes from overcoming adversity and understanding that, and it's okay. And so one of the things about my book, which is, which I think is really interesting and people have responded to is this, you know, I'm not sitting here thumping my chest all the time that I was so great. 
you know, the book is about, about being humble is, is humility is a really important character trait. Um, it's about overcoming adversity. Uh, uh, and, and cause that's how ultimately you succeed. And that's, again, when times are tough, you're actually comfortable because, you know, you know, you got it. Um, you know, you know, there's, and, and it does apply to all walks of life. You know, I mean, you know, a lot, I've given this speech and this talk to a lot of entrepreneur, entrepreneurs and they say kind of the same things. They're always like, well, you know, I wasn't dealing with life and death situations, but let me tell you a story that, that I did deal with. I couldn't make payroll. And I, and I would respond, of course, I said, well, well, first of all, your, you know, your reality is really important. So, so it, maybe it wasn't life, it wasn't in a war zone, but whatever you're going to say to me now was important to you. Um, and I said, well, okay, so what did you do? You couldn't make payroll. You know, these are, this is the, this is a time of crisis. And so what'd you do the next day? Like, did you, and he goes, no, 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 I couldn't make payroll within two hours. And I had to get up in front of my employees. And, and, and so, you know, so everybody has their story that is really important, you know, just as much as, as my kind of crazy war zone stories. Um, but again, it's the, it's the idea of overcoming adversity and being tough enough to do so. And so I, I think that, you know, you gotta be tough, you know, uh, uh, uh you know, obviously mentally, but I think it's, it's just, if, if anything from this, from this book, it's, it's the idea of, of, you know, failing is okay. Failure is not, but failing is okay. And it's how you kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get back in there. And then that's going to be your super fuel. That's how you grow. You learn from that. And that's really important. So for my last question, as we round up this interview, I sort of want to circle back to the beginning of our conversation, Afghanistan. Uh, I don't think Afghanistan, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think Afghanistan was mentioned whatsoever in the presidential debates (laughs) that took place in 2020, at least between President Biden and President Trump. Yet it's a huge issue, as it should be a huge issue. It's been a 20-year war, but it wasn't mentioned at all in the debates. And I feel like we're sort of seeing the news cycle turn away from Afghanistan right now. And I mean, it was really in, it felt like it was in the rear view mirror for like much of the 2010s. And I feel like this is something that's indicative of foreign policy sort of overall, that we're not as cognizant. We don't pay as much attention to this stuff. How do we get people to pay attention to this? Like, I mean, we can, you know, be podcasting, writing books or doing all these appearances, but how do we actually get people to care about this and communicate it in such a way to make people know that it's important. Well, there's, I think there's a different. So there, that's it's an interesting question because you're, there's there's two different audiences. So one is, do national security practitioners care? Does the White House and National Security Council care? Well, I, I would say the answer is yes, but that's kind of internal to the weird bubble that we live in in, in Washington. You know, it's, it's all this outrage over Afghanistan. You know, everyone kind of accused me and others of being part of this blob. You know, this weird national security sphere that only exists in, in our little town here, but the rest of the country doesn't care. Um, uh, now I would argue that the national security practitioners do care. There is an audience, but I think your question is more to do with the American people. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, you know, it's, you know, there's, there's times where, you know, uh, you know, foreign policy is dominant and there's times where it's not. And 600,000 people died from COVID. I, I really don't think, you know, and, and so, so that is where, you know, if you get up in, you know, in, in Iowa or in Nebraska or Mississippi, you're caring about that. At least I hope you are. Um, rather than the events overseas, and it's understandable. It's your it's your existence um, right now. You know, there's worries about inflation, so people are going to care sometimes a lot about what's going to affect them, their health, the economy, their jobs, and, and I get that. Um, uh, and so, you know, it's I think it's it's just it's a it's a reflection of of kind of you know what what's important for Americans on a on a day to day basis, um, and. You know, it's it's a good thing we have a national security apparatus that still kind of provides warning functions and still cares about these things. Um, I think that 
that what's going to be interesting down the line is, is where does actually national security then kind of shift a little bit more towards what's happening inside our country? So you can make an argument that the domestic extremist threat is actually more critical, more is more dangerous than a foreign extremist threat. Um, you can make an article, an argument that, you know, we, with 600,000 people died from COVID, yet in all the wars uh, uh, we fought in the last 20 years, it was, it was tragically, but, you know, less than 10,000 Americans or, or whatever that number uh, number died. So what about our priorities? And so these are these are valid questions. You know, I'm a national security guy, and I think, you know, you, you all are really interested in this as well. Um, uh, but ultimately, I think that, you know, the American people are going to look towards things that kind of affect them the most. And right now, those are things like, you know, like jobs, the economy, prices, gas prices are high. And of course, COVID, which is, you know, still kind of you know ravaging the country. Well, it is our hope that having individuals such as yourself on the podcast will inspire people to spend a, li- a bit more time focusing on these important issues. Uh, Mark, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. It was really just a fantastic conversation on a variety of topics. Uh, thank you for your service. And we hope that you continue to do well in your recovery from Havana syndrome symptoms. And for everyone listening, again, I want to plug Mark's book, Clarity in Crisis. It's available and we'll have it linked in the episode description. Mark, once again, thank you. Thanks so much. It was great. And that was our conversation with Mark Polymeropoulos. Uh, Andre, really a, a fabulous conversation. Uh, you know, we have talked about Afghanistan for quite a long time, and we didn't really have the opportunity to talk about Afghanistan with someone who actually served in Afghanistan. And of course, Mark served in the CIA. Uh, he had a lot of warnings, and you know, he's been talking about these things long before the U.S. withdrawal, but many things that you and I have actually you know, covered in our weekly episodes of What in the World and also on the, the normal Monday podcast. But not a pretty picture that he painted. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of warning signs about Afghanistan, certainly warnings about the threat of a reemergence of terrorist organizations, for example, Al-Qaeda coming back. We're already seeing uh, significant figures within Al-Qaeda come back to some ceremonies, in fact, in some towns in Afghanistan. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, Mark was also on a very interesting episode of Intelligence Matters, where he was actually sharing an oral history of, quote unquote, a triple agent uh, situation that involved a CIA and a triple agent associated with one of the terror groups uh, with Mike Morell. And that was a really great interview, a really great episode about some of Mark's time on the ground in Afghanistan. But I mean, all in all, he is a person who knows what he's talking about with regards to Afghanistan. He's been there on the ground. And uh, some of these warnings are frankly scary. They're yeah. very scary. Yeah, I mean, he's I, some things that he stressed that I think are, are important to uh, reiterate are the the priority of getting our allies out, getting those uh, Afghans who helped the United States, getting them out and back to yes. the U.S. or another safe country because you know they assisted Americans and they helped save American lives while they were in country. So that's a crucial point. Also, that intelligence uh, goes to policymakers, and policymakers make these decisions, not the intelligence community. And so it's not an intelligence failure. It's a policymaking failure. Uh, And so, and I I think the third and maybe the most important thing about this is that China, when you look to China, Mark said, you know, China wins in this scenario. Of course, everyone in the US, I think, or at least most people are of the opinion that the US should have withdrawn from Afghanistan, but the manner in which that is, uh, you know, done has a lot of implications. And this actual instance, China won. And that is a, a huge implication there. In addition to the other implications that uh, he talked about and that we've also talked about. Absolutely. And, and some of his uh, stuff that's been going on with the Havana syndrome, he details some of the symptoms, 
how he sort of got it from this visit to Moscow. And hopefully, we, we, we honestly don't know, right, how these attacks are occurring, who's actually responsible for it. So there's so much that's really muddied in the water. But, uh, I mean, you know, God bless him. I hope he gets better. I hope a lot of our, you know, our foreign policy personnel, our security personnel get better with this and that we are actually able to find the perpetrators of just these heinous uh, attacks, these covert attacks that are happening. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one more time, I just want to plug Mark's book, Clarity in Crisis, uh, a fabulous book on all things leadership, particularly leading during times of crisis. And I think anyone, whether you're in the business world, you work in government, you work in a nonprofit, a big organization, a small organization, work for someone else, you work for yourself, uh, all of these sort of values and kind of um, models of, of leadership are, are really useful. And I, I really do encourage everyone to go out and check his book out. We'll have it linked in the description. Uh, but Andre, uh, again, another fabulous conversation. Yeah, absolutely. It was a great conversation. We really appreciate Mark taking the time to come on. Uh, we have some upcoming episodes that are of interest. Uh, I'm back to doing this mini series on Sri Lanka. We have the regional state minister of regional Co- the state minister of regional cooperation of Sri Lanka, who's basically like a deputy foreign minister for Sri Lanka, giving us the government's view on things as far as that miniseries goes. A bit of a doozy of an interview. Uh, You'll see what I mean when you listen in on the conversation. Uh, We also are planning a great session with Dr. Robert Tate, one of my old professors from the University of Chicago. You might have heard about him. He's an expert on so many different things, national security related. So keep your eyes on that which we'll be releasing in the next week. But folks, for now, that's all I have. Ryan? That's all I got. We'll see you next time.